church would be built, strong, faithful, enduring, and that your glory would cover the, the world. Fathers, we're gathered together today to receive your word. It is our prayer that you would speak, that as you do speak from your word, that we are listening. Give us, Lord, eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us a heart and a mind to understand your word so that we might glorify you in our attitudes, in our actions, in our words. All that we do, Lord, would be for your glory. And I pray, God, that you would make that clear to us today. As we think about this wonderful gift of justification that you've given to us, may it well up within us a true humility, Lord, a true humility that models that of our Lord Jesus Christ. Set us on a path, Lord, to be made like him. And if we're on that path, continue, Lord, to move us forward as we trust in your promises to make us more like Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this, do- for this day, for this time that we have. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, Romans chapter 3. Verses 27 through 31 is where we will be this morning. We'll finish the chapter today. And then, by God's grace, dive into chapter 4 next week. The sermon today is titled, Justified and Humbled. Justified and Humbled. I read twice, at least twice this week, quote on humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. See, thinking less of yourself is really just another form of pride because you're still at the center of your own thinking. True humility is thinking of yourself less often. And if you're thinking, and this is what we were talking about last night, I asked Abigail and I said, well, if you're not thinking of yourself, then who are you thinking of? And she said, God. And I said, yeah. See, the point is, is not to think less of yourself. It's to think about yourself less, but then to think of God more and to think of others who are around you. And in light of thinking about God and being reminded of who he is, meditating upon his character, his glory, the truth of his word, then you begin to grow in true humility and to begin to be made like Christ, and that's what it is that we want, and that's what we're going to talk about today. This wonderful truth, the heart of the gospel, justification by faith, actually creates, it should create, this heart of humility within the believer at salvation, but then justification by faith continues to cultivate a heart of humility in the life of the believer throughout our sanctification as well. I mean, humility has got to be at the core of what marks the life of a Christian, a genuine Christian. It's humility. And so it really makes me think about, man, where, what, what role does humility really play in my life? 
the idea that I've been justified by faith, which when you consider what it is that we talked about last week in faith being a gift that God gives to you, it opens your eyes, right? Faith is a gift that gives you sight to see God and his righteousness and his glory. And faith is a gift by God's grace. And faith is a gift by God's grace allows you to receive Christ as your atoning sacrifice and allows you to be justified in his presence by faith and by faith alone do we have those things? Well, that should create within the Christian this incredible feeling of humility, thankfulness, and gratitude. And by continuing to meditate upon that wonderful truth, the gospel, justification by faith, then we continue to cultivate a heart of humility. It's very easy. I think if you're being honest with yourself, I'm trying to be honest with myself, it's very easy to get off into a path of pride and jettison the path of humility. But for the Christian, this is essential for our walk. I think Augustus Toplady said it best, perhaps, in his hymn, where he writes, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You bring nothing, you still have nothing. Like it's all a gift from God. And yet, when throughout our, Christians, our, our Christian life, we like to think that, well, as I continue to be like Christ and made like Christ, surely I have something to offer to God that garners more favor. All right, I can jockey and put myself in a position with him to where he, he likes me more, or loves me more, or certainly he's more favorable to me than, you know, to the other children of his. But what humility does is it reminds us you came with nothing, you have nothing, and it's all of him. And that puts us in a position to be humble in our walk, as we should be. So Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. I'm going to read the text, then I want us to notice a few things out of it that I think are good and helpful for us, and perhaps we might be able to apply to our lives. Beginning in verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. I go back to what we read in verse 22 last week. That the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then I see verse 25 talking about Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. You think of God putting forward his son for you to be your propitiation, to be your atoning sacrifice. That immediately should, should, should well up or, or spark some sort of feeling of humility within you. What we want to see from our passage today is three things, is that being justified and being humbled, boasting is excluded, 
that joyfully God is our God and that an overflow of that is that we uphold the law. This is what humility looks like and this is what humility does. Firstly, but we see that those who have been justified, humbled, that boasting is excluded. We see this in verses 27 through 28. What becomes of our boasting, specifically in the hour him speaking about the Jews, because he's been talking about what it means to be justified by faith, that justification by faith is for the Jew and for the Gentile. Certainly, we could take it as a principle forward to all of us, and that really the boasting for all of us is excluded, but particularly, he's speaking about the Jews and what it is that they thought they had reason to boast about. You go back and you look at verse um, 17, chapter 2, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, why did the Jew boast? Because they had this, this relationship with God where he came to them and brought to them covenant promises, right? But it became this grounds for this incredible pride to well up within them in this, in which led to boasting. And the indictment that he brings against them in chapter 2, verse 21, is then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You're boasting that you have this relationship with God, that he's given you all these wonderful promises and things to do and to live by, and yet all you're doing is then you become a teacher to other people, but never teaching yourself. You never take your own advice. Everything that you receive from God is always, oh, that's good for everyone else. But you never had your eyes on your own spiritual formation and the condition of your own heart. That's fertile ground for pride. And so Paul is addressing their boasting. Yes, they had advantages, right? Chapter 3, verse 1, they had many advantages. But then we saw in chapter 3, verse 9, that just because they had advantages didn't mean they were better off. See, it's not just about, you, you can't be justified by having the law. You can't be justified by doing the law. Justification is by faith to be made right with God, to be brought into a peace, reconciled with God, to be declared not guilty, to be innocent. That's by faith, by faith alone. And when you've been justified by faith and by faith alone as a gift of God given to you, well, that excludes all grounds for boasting. How could, how could they boast? How could any of us boast in our salvation? I think many Christians fall into the same trap that the Jews did and that they had this relationship with God, but it led to pride. How many Christians walk around like that because you've been justified by faith and God's grace in your life? It kind of inherently builds up within us this feeling of superiority over other people. Oh, all those poor, unsaved people. Remember at one time you were one of those poor, unsaved persons. And God, by his grace, chose to rescue you and save you. You should see yourself as one who humbly has received this, rejoices in it, and then becomes a dispenser of this grace and truth to others who are around you. You've been given a privilege. You and I have been given a privilege to be citizens of the kingdom of God and then be able to speak of the king of that kingdom to others, but it has to start with humility. 
It's excluded, he says. What becomes of our, what becomes of our boasting? Completely excluded. There's no part. You've been, literally, you've been severed from being able to boast in your salvation. You need to remember always that you, can, you, really, you really did contribute nothing to your salvation. You really did. Zero. And, and by God's free grace, he saved you, imparting unto you the gift of faith, by which all the other blessings and promises that accompany faith are yours and mine. That's what we were called to, to rest in and rejoice in last week. So boasting is completely excluded. It's been banished away. How could we boast when God is the one who is the justifier that we saw in verse 26? He is just and the justifier. It's all of him. It's all his work. It's his hand at work in your life. And it happens not by another work of the law, but by faith. Faith removes all grounds for boasting in salvation and sanctification. And because he says in verse 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, completely severed from any work of the law. Nothing that you can do would contribute to your salvation. And, and so it's a wonder that anybody is saved. If it's completely within the realm of God and completely all in his power to do it, and we are the ones that rebelled, the fact that any of us have been reconciled to him and are saved and justified by faith is a complete working and miracle by the act of God in our life. I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to... To, 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 to break up the soil, to till the soil of your hearts for a genuine hum humility which breeds a, a real heart-wrought deep love and appreciation for Christ and sets you on a path towards serving and ministering the great good news of the gospel to others. Boasting is excluded. It's apart from the law. Like I said before, it's not having the law. It's not doing of the law, but justification is by faith and by faith alone. There's no synergism involved in this. It's not like God does his part and you do your part, which is so common in most of the other religions of the world. right? God does 50% and you do 50%, and then you're made right with him. There's no 50% on our part. There's 0%. Salvation is all of God. All a work of God. There is no team work in our salvation. Therefore, boasting is absolutely excluded. If you had something to contribute, even if it was just one little thing upon which you could say, I stand upon this one thing that I did in my salvation, then you would have at least a little stone, of, of a pebble of boasting to hold on to. But we don't even have that because it's all of him. And that creates and cultivates this humility for us to, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. I thought of um, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I think this does such a great job of illustrating to us the, the, the reality of justification by faith. 
Jesus, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Please notice that. That's not the point of the sermon today, but just make a side note. Those who trust in themselves also treat others with contempt. The reverse of that should be true. Those who trust in Christ should treat others with non-contempt, with grace. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, and you know this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see the relationship there. Humility beat his breath, wouldn't even look. I'm not even worthy to look your direction. Just beat his breast as a sign of contrition. Just be merciful to me. It's like, this, it's like the thief on the cross, right? Just remember me in your kingdom. And these two men go away justified because they saw they had nothing to bring. And humility is an essential component in that. This humility creates, created at salvation and is cultivated in sanctification. We're reminded in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, that anything that we have is we have is because the Lord has given it to us. And that includes, I mean, when I say anything, I mean anything. You have it because God has graciously given it to you. In salvation, in your spouse, in your children, in your job, in your retirement, your season of life, your investments, your home. I mean, it, you name it. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. You have, if you have it, God gave it to you. Whether that's physically with your possessions or theologically and doctrinally. I mean, I'm going to tell you that one of the things that can breed pride within a church and an air of superiority is doctrine. Doctrine is supposed to humble you. You're, as you read the scriptures and you're like, the Lord is teaching me all these wonderful things and your heart is drawn to love him more and worship him. And then we go out the front door with our chest puffed up and we feel good about ourselves and now I've got to be the teacher to all the other people. And then you then look down, you end up looking down upon them. Now, yes, read your Bibles. Learn. Grow. Eat. Drink. Feast upon the word of God and have him teach you. Listen, but understand that if he's teaching you, you're the student and you don't have anything unless, he, unless you've received it from him. He's given it to you. And yes, be a dispenser of that truth to other people. But as one who has said, let me come and show you where, I've, where I have eaten, where I have drank. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And that humility continues to permeate your life, your, your speech, your living, the humble servant unto the great high king. 
I think I would echo the words of Paul and what he would say later on in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 10, or chapter 15, verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not ineffective. You are who you are. You have what you have. By the grace of God working in your life. And his grace is not ineffective. It's working in you. Allow the grace that you have received from God to feed a life of humility. As Sam read for us this morning, if we're going to boast in anything, let us boast in Christ. If you're going to boast upon one thing, may it be the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. Boast in him and in him alone. And I'm telling, uh, my, my encouragement today is for us to think about how this affects not just your relationship with God, how pride can negatively affect your relationship with God, but with other people as well. Humility, cultivating a heart of humility will not only propel you into a, a life of worshiping God, but it'll propel you into a life of genuine service and love towards other people. You, you know your home... A sign of someone who's proud is, is someone who doesn't have time for other people or won't associate with certain types of people. Humility, the life of humility avails themselves to others, to anybody. Because you want to, for their good, share with them the riches of what God's word says. C.S. Lewis says, There is one vice in which no man in the world is free which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of. The vice I am talking of is pride. We hate it. You hate pride when you see it in someone else. And yet we're so blind to it ourselves when we possess it and when we practice it. The Lord would have his people have our lives marked by humility. And this is, we're great, greatly aided in this when we see what we see in verse 29 and 30, that God has become our God. Verses 29 and 30, or is the God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, yes of Gentiles also, since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Justification by faith breeds this Humility, it removes all boasting. Not only that, but humility is cultivated when we see that the God who justifies us is the one God. The true God, the living God. He's yours and you're his for all of eternity and that cannot be lost. And that in Christ, we are one. Paul would say in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That there is this unity amongst God's people, that if you are a Christian, you are united and tied to every other Christian, and that God equally loves all of his children. We're no better off than anybody else. 
there was a big problem. I mean, contextually at this time, there's this, still this huge rift. They're, str- they're still trying to get over this idea that Jew and Gentile under Christ are one, equals. They're trying to wrap their mind around this. We've got all these books and all this history, God, where you've been telling us that this is, has not been the case for so long. And Paul would go on in other places to say, yes, this is the mystery in Christ that has been hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to the saints. That Jew and Gentile equally are justified by faith. There is no favoritism between one over the other. And then he does this thing where he quotes, just by, it's like sneaking it in there, that God is one. That the God who justifies the Jew and the God who justifies the Gentile is one. Paul, again, here is going for the heart of the issue. He's already said in chapter 2 that the Jews weren't saved by having the law. He already then told them later on in chapter 2 that the Jews weren't saved by circumcision. He told them later on in chapter 3 that they were equally sinful like all Gentiles. And now he's hitting them in the heart as he quotes the Jewish covenant of the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. God is one. This was the heartbeat of Jewish religion, of Judaism. They were monotheistic. They believed in one God. While all all the other nations of the world were polytheistic, worshiping multiple gods, they knew the true God because he had come to them and revealed himself to them. And in the Shema, this this prayer of Deuteronomy chapter 6, this was like the heartbeat of God's communication of his covenant love to his people. And what Paul does, he's saying by quoting that God is one, the God, the one God who came to them in Deuteronomy 6 and gave them these promises is the same God who justifies the Jew and the Gentile. In other words, all of these things that we see here in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy are for the Christian. This is his covenantal promises and blessings for all of those who are in Christ. This is the way that we understand the Old Testament in light of the New Testament revelation. It's the reason why Paul quotes it. Now specifically, he quotes chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But before that, in chapter chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, he stated to them, that he's given them his commandments, his statutes, his rules. That they may fear him all their days, keeping his statutes and commandments and rules. That God has promised to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he begins to get into his promises in verse chapter 6, verse 4 of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That We've heard that before. Jesus kind of said that and applied it to the New Testament believer. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates and essentially speak about God anywhere and everywhere as you communicate the truths of God to your family. 
And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then you take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, you shall serve him, and by his name you shall swear, and you shall not go after other gods. And he goes on from there. The one God who gave them all these promises, Paul says is the one God, the true God, the living God of the Jew and the Gentile, those who have been justified by faith. And he would actually make this connection, the writer of, sorry, the writer of Hebrews would make this connection as well later on. He would, the writer of Hebrews would say in chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise. That's what Deuteronomy 6 was all about. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Fast forward to verse 13. All of these, including Abraham, all of these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them for a city. Verse 39 and 40. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. See, God revealed himself as the one true living God back in Deuteronomy 6. But all those promises that he gave to them were types and shadows of the true promise of which the author of Hebrews tells us Abraham was really seeking a heavenly homeland. And none of those who were walking by faith then have received that homeland in its fullness yet. They should not receive it in its fullness apart from us all receiving that homeland together. The God, the living God who came to them is the living God who comes to us. And he justifies us by faith. And all of these covenantal promises are ours. Now, if that doesn't breed some and kick up some humility within our hearts, then I don't know what will. He has saved you by his sovereign grace. Jesus goes and prepares a place for you. We have a land that we're waiting for, a homeland, a heavenly land, a better country, of which we're pilgrims in this life. Same, we're on the same pilgrimage Abraham was on, Moses was on, David was on, every, all the Old Testament saints were on. We're all pilgriming to the same land, that we would all receive that land together by faith. You think of that, the, you think of that truth. He has saved you 
to receive that land by faith. He has placed you as a pilgrim to, to journey to receive that land by faith. He is preparing that place for us to receive by faith. And there will come a day where we will actually possess it entirely by faith. It will not be anything that you have done in this life. But by a, by, only by a sovereign declaration by God that you would have these things. You came with nothing. You have nothing. of yourself to contribute, but you have the God who has done these things and promised them to you. Lastly, then, how then do we respond? How does one live who has been justified by this faith, boasting is excluded, received all these promises of God given to us, assured to us that, that the true God, the living God is our God by faith? How then do we live? verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. See, the temptation here is to go, okay, well, if I have the promises by faith, that means the law is now my enemy, and we do away with it, right? Paul's response, no. You don't do away with it. The Christian looks at the law of God, and we don't overthrow it, meaning we don't nullify it, we don't abolish it, we don't sever ourselves completely from the law of God. Rather, what does the Christian do? We uphold it. We establish it. We stand it up. The law of God for it to serve the purpose of which God has always intended for it to serve. We uphold it in several ways. The gospel establishes the law properly in several ways. It testifies to its truthfulness. The law is still a communication of God's perfect standard of righteousness and truth. The law also reveals my sinfulness. People need to see that they're, they're sinners and they're separated from God. The law does that. We're upholding God's standard of righteousness. We don't sever ourselves and do away with it, and then everyone just lives however they want to live or do whatever they want to do at any given moment, feeling however they feel. No, we look to the Word of God, the law, and we see what is pleasing in God's sight. The one who's been justified by faith and has a heart of humility says, show me what I can do as an expression of love to please you, out of my love for you. And then how can I show that to other people? The person who's truly been justified by faith, who pr truly possesses humility, wants to sacrifice their lives in service unto the Lord and unto others. He's not concerned about them getting what they've got coming to them. The law is upheld because it not only reveals my sinfulness, but it shows me that the requirements have been met by Christ. And I remember that. I uphold the law, and I look at it in all of its perfection and its beauty, and I say, I can't. And then I remember very quickly, Christ did. And I'm truly justified by faith. And then really, and practically, it gives me a path to walk by faith as a Christian. 
true, true godliness, true morality is revealed to me. To not put any other gods before him. To not make anything in his image. To honor him. To not steal my neighbor's stuff. Not to, co- you know, not to covet, not to murder. All of those things. I don't, you know, that, that, show, that tells me what's godly. What is God pleased with? I look at the law and I see this is how he would call me to live. And I embrace it. And I apply myself to it as he strengthens me to do it. That's where, again, where humility comes in. I see the standard. I know it's perfection. I know I can't meet it. I know what Christ has. Then I embrace that truth, and I set out to live a life by faith. And that's the whole point. He's setting us up to then look at Abraham in chapter 4. How does a person who's justified by faith actually live? A person who's justified by faith, and when God says, I want you to get up and go, they say, okay, let's go. I want you to do these things. Okay, let me do these things. As, as a joyful expression response for the one who spoke to me and called me and made me his. That's what a life of faith would really look like. I look at the law and I go, this is pleasing to you. And oh, with all my heart, I would love to please you, Lord, in that way, in the way that I live. And I set out to do it, but then I also seek his help in doing it as well. I begin to live out what I see in the law by faith with other humility. And I think of how we can apply these things to ourselves personally. You think of where the Lord has you and where he's placed you, who he's put in your life. Think of the roles that you have in life. Do you demonstrate humility? Christ-like, true, genuine humility that is springing from justification by faith with where you are in life, with your coworkers, with your church family members, as a husband and a father? How does humility presenting itself in your marriage and in your parenting? How is humility presenting itself in, if you're a, if you're a student and you're young, how does humility present itself in your life when you're in the classroom, when you're among your friends? How does it present itself in you honoring your father and your mother? All the parents are like, say that again. (laughs) It speaks to all of us, marrieds, singles, Employed, unemployed, rich, poor, healthy, sick. How does humility, like, how does humility show itself when you're at the top of your health? When you're in the hospital bed? How is humility being displayed everywhere you go and everything that you do because you carry around with you this, this wonderful truth. I've been justified by faith in Christ. That's it. I, I'm, I'm calling us to really think about, I don't, you know, not conceptually. I'm thinking about practically. How do you do this and how and, and, and when and, and where? 
will you? Apply it and live it out by faith. The removal of boasting and the highlighting of humility sets us to, on a path to rightly live by faith. Justification by faith helps you know that God sees his son when he looks upon you, will deal with you as he is pleased to deal with his son. We live every moment of every day knowing this and letting the humility of it fill our hearts and fuel our lives for godly living unto him. As we begin to prepare to take communion together, again, the reason why we do this every week is so that our eyes are drawn specifically to the work of Christ, what he's done for us. You stand, we stand in right relationship with him and with one another simply because of the work of Christ. And by faith and by faith alone, we've been justified. I mean, this, this is going to be, this is such a huge deal that it becomes, it's just going to be mentioned over and over and over again in the book of Romans so that we might see it, so that we might understand it and live it and apply it in a way that truly honors him. The communion table is a way for us to continue to cultivate that and see that. I come to the table and I, and I hold that bread and I hold that juice and I'm reminded of what it is that occurred, that Christ received as my propitiation so that I can be justified by faith. And I receive it with what? Humility, thankfulness, worship. And I don't just have those things at the table. My prayer is like, Lord, I want to have those things. I want to partake. I want to eat at the table every moment of every day. I want to feast and drink upon Christ every moment so that I might continue to live rightly for him and glorify him in all that I do. And so if you're here today and you know Christ and you're visiting and you, are, you know Christ in that way, you've been justified by faith and by faith alone, you are saying, I contribute zero to my own salvation. I, I know that I am justified solely upon my faith in the finished work of Christ, then you are welcome to partake of communion with us. But if you're not sure, and you can't confess Christ as Lord and Savior, and that you've been justified by faith and by faith alone, and you don't contribute anything, then I would just ask you to let the elements be, but to sit and remain seated in your chair and to think about what it is that we have spoken about. And who do you say that he is? So the elements are on the back tables. You can get those and return back to your seat for some time of prayer, and then we will partake of the communion elements together here shortly.